I've been involved in a number of interesting interviews lately, things I've been writing about and thinking about. One of them I'd like to share with you is a company called Chirp. Now, Chirp is actually an interesting company in that they use an old technology for a new purpose. And as people know, that's one of my favorite kinds of things. And one of my favorite things about working in IT is that we're able to disrupt, transform, reinvigorate, reinvent, whatever term you want to use, traditional industries um, through solving problems that have plagued them for a long time. So whether we're talking about things like manufacturing or ag tech or um, different areas in manufacturing. So, um, and what Chirp does is they actually use a technology that sounds something like something from the Cold War. That is, they use sound waves to transmit data. So what that means is that you could transmit data from a machine to another machine, like M to M or phone to phone or what have you, using sound waves um, and through their technology. So you don't need QR codes, you don't need Wi-Fi, you don't need Bluetooth or NFC. And you know there are some caveats here. Um, in that we're talking about relatively small amounts of data um, in terms of the distance that the data can travel. It's, you know, it's not kilometres, although it can be transmitted over the phone. So if you were, say, in a conference call with someone, um, you could hold your phone up to the, to the microphone and be able to transmit that way. And I wrote, I wrote an article for Readwine about them because I interviewed them. And it's funny, you know, you get a very different perspective when you talk to different people in a company about their technology. I first came across um, Chirp when I went to a hackathon. I think we've talked about the hackathon previously on um, the Weekly Squeak where um, we were doing a women's health product at the Lady Problems Hackathon here in Berlin. And one of the participants, or the sponsors, I guess you say, was actually Chirp. And when they mentioned Chirp, it sounded very very C, B2C type stuff. Whereas most of the real applications in terms of real, you know, that transformational sort of stuff are actually B2B. Things like workplaces where you can't traditionally use the other forms of technology because of security reasons or safety reasons. So when you're dealing with chemicals, very high-tech chemicals, or high, highly, um, I don't know, flammable chemicals, maybe that's the term I'm looking for, um, areas like um, in nuclear power plants, for example, um, laboratories, things like that, um, a product like Chirp works very well. Um, and I'd, I'd encourage you to actually have a look at, um, at the article. I will put a little link in. And have a look at the demos, because if it all sounds a bit weird and a bit kind of like, well, I don't really get it, when you see it, you go, hmm, ah, interesting. And the name is denoted because when the, um, the data is transmitted using the program, if you like, through the sound waves, it makes a little chirpy noise, which is a bit like R2-D2 speaking, if you like. So it's, um, it's quite a fun thing to have a look at with some big, big kind of potential ways to you know, make big changes in industry. Yeah, I remember seeing that demo from Chirp at the hackathon. And um, yeah, I didn't really understand quite what the use case was. And um, yeah. Better communication, people. Better communication. On the subject of better communication, or maybe on the subject of too much communication, I came across a whole bunch of uh, topics, articles, uh, discussion over the past few weeks about the laptop is dead, culminating in an article from Mike Elgin that I read, infamous um, old school, I don't mean that in an offensive way, but he is old school, he's been around for a while, tech journalist. And I was wondering, is this just journalistic mumbo-jumbo bluster to get people to click a headline, or is it actually true? So let's look at the facts. Well, this is the problem I wonder these days. You have to produce so much content, as we know, that you often end up producing things that are not strictly that valid. But that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. Well, we both work for ad-supported media. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Um, let's have a look at the facts. Android last week, for the first time, overtook Windows for the most dominant operating system on the planet. Um, lackluster laptop sales despite um, Apple's always, they always claim they're selling well even if they're not uh, the MacBook Pro was not that well received as kind of being too much of a direction towards iOS um, okay, Windows laptops I think are still selling quite well but again they're these kind of hybrid laptop tablets mm. um, and basically 
people are saying that now tablet-based operating systems are so good and you can do so much on them that there is no need for a laptop anymore. Uh, I would argue there are a couple of problems here. One is internet connectivity. Laptops are traditionally, not necessarily the way that people use them these days, but traditionally much better at working offline. You don't have to do everything in a browser or in a cloud-connected um, capacity. Mm-hmm. It's hard to code on a tablet. It is possible, especially on Android, but it is hard. And things like video editing, audio editing at big scale, I think will be a long time before that's possible on a tablet. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you think, Kate, and what uh, the audience thinks on is the laptop dead? Is the tablet just a new laptop? Um, does it matter? Will Does one become the other? What do you think, Kate? You know what? I would like to probably read this article and have a bit of a think because, you know, I've been in just times where I've thought the mobile phone is dead because we do not use the phone anymore as a phone, i.e. we call someone's number and talk to them on the phone. So, you know, I would have to really nut down and have a think about the functionalities that we want from a, a laptop as opposed to a, a tablet or indeed a phone. And, um, yeah, have a think because, you know, we keep, every, every few weeks we hear about how, I don't know, other, other technologies from smartwatches to fitness, app, fitness um, devices are, are failing. So what, what is succeeding in this? It's, a, it's an interesting dilemma. And actually that's a very good point because apparently tablet sales are down. So if laptop sales are down and tablet sales are down, what actually is selling? I don't know. <laughs> and, and, you know. If you look at mobiles, for example, I mean, when's the last time you've seen a mobile that, that just blew your mind? Um, well, I think we're getting into a whole other conversations mm. here. Mm. And actually, this year, there have been some good announcements. Um, in fact, actually, this is actually possibly feeding into the topic, but I hadn't really thought about it. But um, so Samsung just announced the S8, which um, the th- actually the thing that captivated me the most was this DAX adapter they have, which is not a new idea, but um, they're possibly doing the best so far, where you can actually use your phone and then plug it into a dock when you get home and it has proper computer ports, and then it basically becomes an extension of your desktop. Or it becomes your desktop. Now, Ubuntu tried to do this, and actually, again, just this is all very timely, they just announced they're finally giving up on Ubuntu phone, and they've stopped development on Unity, their custom uh, desktop application for uh, trying to unify phone and desktop, which I think is a good step for them because now they can focus on the desktop. Um, But again, it's a a good... It was a really interesting... um, technology actually the only thing that put me off actually buying a samsung s8 because i'm looking to update my phone Mm. and getting this was that the phone itself is too big for me i currently have a five point something inch phone and i find it already too big and this was bigger if they had it in a smaller form factor then i would be snapping it up straight away because i actually really found it an interesting idea and microsoft had developed versions that work quite well on this um this sort of desktoped phone as well and I've been using the Microsoft applications on my 7 inch tablet and again they work quite well the big lacking point in all of these so far so even on my yoga book there's like this faux trackpad but Android isn't built to cope with it so whilst the hardware has it Android vanilla doesn't really cope with it and so I I would say that Samsung and Microsoft have done a lot to get this working but still Android itself is lagging behind to really fill the need for the pros. Yeah, if you're going to talk about sort of improvements in mobiles and high-tech mobiles, conversely, you've got, um, which was the mo- one of the most hyped products of Mobile World Congress, was the old-school um, Nokia phone. The old one we all had back in the 90s, was it? Um, and they bought them back, and people were terribly excited because they could play Snake on a mobile phone where you could only have eight text messages, and was you, you, you know, your very, very basic kind of phone. And people, I think that was just retro love. Yeah, yeah. is it? Is it nostalgia? Yeah, I think it was just nostalgia. I don't know if any young people who don't remember it cared about it. That's a good point. I don't know. You, you, you could be right. It would be interesting to see who bought them, what the um, cohort was. And, and feature phones are still quite popular in certain parts of the world. Okay. So it's still actually a reasonable industry. Yeah. Okay, what would you like to talk about next, Kate? Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, older people and computers, or older people and technology. And the reason I mention this is a couple of things I've been working on at the moment. Um, 
as we all know in the world of um, technology journalism, sometimes we can come across an idea and write it up, and it will take quite a while to go to press for all kinds of reasons. Um, so, you know, you've kind of been following it for a while, but then you'll come across a new one as well and you go, oh, this is interesting. So a couple of people I've, um, I've come across recently, or in the last few months, if you like, Intuition Robotics have created a robot called LEQ, and when I say robot, we often think of a robot that's targeting a front-facing, you know, uh, person as being a humanoid robot where it's got some type of face. By comparison, this robot looks a bit more like a lamp, actually, uh, with a little docking station. <laughs> and I will actually, um, of course, have the link so you can have a look at the photos. And it comes from an Israeli company, and the, the aim of this robot is a little different to some of the ones we know in, in um, dealing with older people because often the notion of a robot for older people is either that the, um, the older person cares for the robot as a, um, a, a replacement for a pet or a child. For example, there's the seals you can pat on the cats and things like that, and they're often used for people with dementia. As opposed to robots that um, are used in a caring capacity where either the robot is used as a bit like a pet or a small child where the person cares for it, a bit like the seals that we've seen in the past and also the dogs and cats where they're used for people with dementia to pat and to care for. Um, or you have, of course, the robots that are more humanoid that are doing functional tasks or entertainment, things like Neo and Pepper. So they're there to keep, keep you company or help you in, you know, engage and feel a sense of um, pleasure. Um, this robot's a little bit different. Well, firstly, one of its functions, it, it makes it a bit closer to... Um, perhaps Siri or something like that. Um, it's almost there um, to put the older person in the place of the home. So if you imagine a traditional family home, the older person would traditionally live at home with the um, extended younger family, so the, the, the children and the grandchildren. And the, the parent, like the grandparent or the older parent, however you put them, wouldn't necessarily be constantly engaging, but they would sort of be there and they would be part of things. So that's what this tries to facilitate. So that periodically the um, the robot will put a message and say, you know, your children are online, would you like to chat with them? Or your grandchild has just put a photo up, would you like to have a look at it? And you could opt for yes or no. But it also has sort of um, knowledge of the day-to-day -day from your, your calendar type stuff to the weather and all sorts of things. So it might say, it's a nice day today, would you like to go for a walk? Or it might say, you know... Um, we noticed um, you haven't listened to any music for a while. Do you want to play some Frank Sinatra? So things like that. And it's got a lot more of those AI capacities that we're starting to see in almost all technology these days. I mean, you can't get a press release without the mention of the words AI in it somewhere. Um, and conversely, um, I spoke to a, another company called um, K4 Connect in the States. And very interestingly, the, um, the founder is... Um, a man who, and I won't put a link because I haven't written an article yet, a man who was one of the security people behind the original um, fingerprint technology that we see with mobile phones. So, you know, it's, it's kind of your Silicon Valley dream story, if you like, where someone creates something that's picked up by a, a, big, a big telco, makes some very large amount of money and retires, which this person did, and then, they, then he decided at a later age to... Um, take a role in um, caring for older people. So creating basically connected um, technology for um, both in-home facilities and also in things like nursing homes and aged care roles. And what, what's been very interesting talking to him has just been a lot of the shift in the way people are talking about older people and technology. A lot of the original talk, when we think of old people and technology, it's a bit of a joke. Oh, they don't know how to program the, lap, the DVD. Oh, that's really funny. Or they can't work their mobile phone. Ha, ha, ha. Whereas most older people, it seems like nowadays, are actually quite interested to gauge with technology. They want to be able to learn things and to access, you know, anything from the TED Talk that's, you know, that on topic that interests them or... Um, you know, to be able to change the, um, the heating in their house or whatever it is. So a lot of those kind of misconceptions about, about people and technology will, will start to really change, I think, in the next few years because, um, you know, as our, our younger people are getting older, 
you've got a cohort that are more, are more tech savvy. But of course, you then have the, the other issue there where you've got people that may have declining mental uh, faculties or mental abilities, and we need our AI to be able to respond to that and to be um, responsive enough so that it's able to modify um, tasks or instructions or um, that sort of those sort of um, capacities, I guess. I don't know. I guess there's a couple of thoughts going on in my head. One is a more practical one about just the sorts of interfaces we'll be creating. Mm. Um, and there's this whole movement now of no interface. Yeah. You know, definitely. when you're reasoning with a machine through audio or... Actually, mostly audio. I mean, virtual reality is still an interface of sorts. Then how does that look? Well, how does it look? How does it work? It doesn't look like anything. Um, yeah, which is interesting. And I guess this sort of... May, I guess simplifying technology and lowering that need to understand a whole kind of bunch of jargon and settings and things like that, which started with a kind of touchscreen and is now even more prevalent with um, voice interaction is, yeah, it's sort of, it's hard to say because, of course, the great levelling of technology has come at a time when everyone is more familiar with it. Mm. So it's hard to really say if one is more influential than the other. Um yeah, it was interesting. I was actually speaking with a Japanese uh, guy earlier in the week. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't live in Japan. I mean, he actually lives in Estonia, rather sure. strangely. But um, we were talking, I was talking briefly to him about the kind of the amount of robots you see in Japan mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and he, uh, he said some interesting things, actually. He said, um, firstly, that he was... Uh, he wasn't aware of these any of these sorts of care robots existing yet. Mm-hmm. But he was saying that um, there is now often more technology in the countryside in Japan than there is in the city, kind of per head of population, mm. because there's so few young people in the countryside that uh, the technology is needed for people to keep in touch more. Uh, and things like drones and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I think he was saying actually more in the countryside. Or maybe I've completely forgotten what we talked about. Mm-hmm. But that was it was something. It was a sort of interesting shift there. And I and I guess, I mean, people are people. There's some older people who are always going to be reluctant to change, and there's some who are more flexible with things. But I suppose everyone likes to talk to something, and if that something is a machine or a person, but it gives, you know, let's be blunt, lots of conversations with people are not that interesting. (laughs) So if a machine can give you a base-level interaction, then what's the problem with that? I mean, I would question, firstly, the idea that the machines are all to be talked to as though they're people. Um, I think a lot of the developers are moving away from the idea that robots have to be a bit humanoid and therefore people can talk to them like a friend. A lot of the people they test them on, the older people, they don't want that. They actually want to know, they know it's a robot. They don't pretend it's, you know, a, a quasi-child or a, a maid or whatever. But secondly, an interesting thing, you, you mentioned voice um, voice technology. This is one of the bigger issues with robotics is that there's a lot of platforms now that are voice activated. And older people are overwhelmingly represented in hearing impaired. So uh, one of the things that in in the trials of technology that um, the people I spoke to have said to me, one of the things that causes the most anxiety is any voice-activated tech because they can't hear it. They can't hear the instructions and they can't hear the the commands. And therefore they want things to be both, you know, visual and auditory. It's actually an interesting point. I haven't written anything about it, but I went through a period over the past couple of months of going temporarily deaf in one ear. I got, And I also remember my granddad went deaf and the way people treat you when you're deaf is because yeah. it's not very like often when people have poor vision, they have a cane or their eyes are noticeably different and other disabilities are obviously more noticeable. But deafness is often not that noticeable, especially even if you have a hearing aid. Modern hearing aids are so small. That's true. People don't see them. Um, and I found it people are incredibly patronizing to you. People are incredibly assumptive. They just say things without directing it. Like they'll just say something in a room and just assume that everyone can hear. Sure. And it's actually quite interesting. I'm not, I mean, to be honest with you, I think machines would be better at acknowledging it because if you put it in like deaf mode or something, so it always says, you know, instead of you saying, hey, uh, hey, Alexa, then it might say, hey, Chris, I want to tell you something. It's a bit surreal, but, you know, at least you're then listening out for the, cl- the cue, not just random noise. 
don't know. Are these are, are any of them actually rolled out yet? Are they being used in? Yes. Yeah, they are. With um, with with good results, I think. And bear in mind, these the kind of you know the people I'm talking to are not people that. Oh, I've got an idea. I'm just going to do this robot. They partner with gerontologists. On, they have gerontologists on their on their staff. They partner with university researchers. They partner with you know leading roboticists in um, in academia. Um, so it's not just you know you, you sort of your typical uh, people have this idea of startups being hey I've got an idea I'm going to you know pitch this idea and get all this money. These are a bit more learned and it's actually something that. I, w- I would like to mention that it may be something we, we do a bit more of a show on later. The, one of the biggest shifts I'm actually seeing in, in tech at the moment over the last few months, perhaps, is there's been a real shift from the kind of startup hype, the idea that um, anyone can be an entrepreneur, anyone can start a, a startup and make all this money, and VCs are just throwing pots of money at people because they've got a dream and you know, you can be a millionaire at 2021 20, or whatever. Um, by comparison, a lot of the people I'm talking to, and it may be because I'm working in IT, that could be the exception, of course. I'm not working in, you know, tech retail, fashion or something like that. Um, are academics, people that have had careers in academia, um, they've done all their research already, they know, they've tested their products through, you know, rigorous... Um, research and going through ethics committees and going through you know published journal articles and all that peer reviews and all that stuff and they're able to take their products to market and this is something we particularly see in things like ag tech biotech so um, and also some of the machine learning kinds of things because you think of things like AI and machine learning they're thrown around these terms which I said earlier as though they're just you know the flavor of the month and these are very highly academic concepts that you know have only been in universities. Um, and it's only been the last year or so that they've sort of started to make their way into the, you know, the mainstream vernacular. That was a roundup of some of the articles that have interested us over the past few weeks. So moving forward, we're going to be going to a weekly format and we'll be covering probably less in a little bit more detail, but more regularly. So we won't have this sort of long break between episodes. And we're going to polish up the production a little bit. I was hoping to get that ready for this episode, but it wasn't quite done in time, basically because of dances with DHL delivery people. Amazon Prime is a bit of a myth when it always ends up with a neighbour for three days. Anyway, that's a whole other conversation. Drones can't come fast enough. Um, Although drones would still deliver to your neighbour, wouldn't they? Anyway, um, so that's all coming. Next, we have an interview with Asaf Yigal from Logs.io. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about what they do, which is uh, a logging framework based on the Elk stack. So Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana, very famous open source kind of suite for logging. And then at the end of the interview, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of open source. Now, interestingly, this ties kind of to our last little conversation. After the interview, logs.io are from Israel. And I was in Israel last week, and I have a few things to share with you. So we'll talk about that after the interview. So, uh, so let me start. So my name is Asaf, and I'm one of the founders of a company called Logs.io. Uh, we're a log analytic company um, building, uh, basically taking the open source, the most common open source product today for log analytic, which is ELK, based on Elasticsearch Log Session Kibana, uh, enhancing it with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to uh, basically, basically give a log analytics solution um, as a cloud service. This is what we do. Um, the company is two and a half years old. We have thousands of customers from across the world. We have offices in uh, Israel and in the US. And um, it's basically what we do. So this, this is yeah. one of the reasons that, um, there's a couple of reasons that the email sort of out of the blue sparked my attention. Um, one is the actual company and then one is the message itself which Mm. um, and it's interesting you mention Israel because I was in Tel Aviv last week and I spoke to a company that does something moderately similar to what you're doing uh, and I didn't actually realize you also had offices there so it'd be interesting to um, which company is that I mean I can uh... the Corologics yeah yeah Yeah. So what would you say that, because we're actually going to talk about my trip to Israel elsewhere in this episode. So it's kind of interesting to tie the two together. 
what would you say your point of difference between logs and them would be? So what CoreLogic's doing is uh, um, they have their own proprietary log analytics system or log management system, and they've developed uh, something which is called log aggregation to be able to aggregate the logs, and then they can try and tell you um, how many logs do you have from each one of the types that, they, that you've aggregated. So mm-hmm. that's uh, roughly what they do, and I'm sure they'll do a better job at describing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was very good at doing Well, I, I was lucky <clears throat> enough you were unlucky enough that he gave me a live demo which always always <laughs> helps of course but yes. I guess so I'm actually moderately familiar with Elk um, I worked with a company for a period of time that actually built on top of Elasticsearch um, do are, are, is Elastic also a competitor or do they not offer um, a kind of SaaS product that's comparable to what you're doing? Uh, so, so let me uh, start giving a, a little bit of overview on Elk. So, um, so, so Elastic, yes, Elastic is the company behind uh, the stack itself. I mean, they are most of the maintainers of the stack, even though we, as well as other companies, are contributing uh, um, to the code and to the content. I think after Elastic, Logs.io is the second uh, contributor to uh to the stack itself when it comes to content, to uh, how-tos, to uh, different tutorials and, and uh, stuff like that. And, uh, and um, if you look at downloads, I think the last statistics that I heard is that Elasticsearch is the second most downloadable uh, open source. So uh, that's right after Linux. I mean, not right after because Linux is way, way, way more downloaded than uh, than Elasticsearch. But uh, it is coming in second, which kind of like shows the acceptance of it as being a valid log analytics solution. Um, so yes. if we look at the market, the market is separated into proprietary products like Splunk with about 12,000 customers. Uh, second runner-up is Sumo Logic with about 1,000 customers. And then some uh, small players like uh, like Logly um, and, and other players in this market. And they capture like a fraction of a fraction of the market uh, when it comes to uh, the expansion of the ELK. So if you can all of them together, and I'll be generous, they may have 15,000 companies using them all together. Uh, if you look at, uh, at Elasticsearch, there's half a million companies using it from Netflix to Facebook to Google to Cisco to Oracle to all of them if you actually dig inside. And some of them may run Splunk in parallel, but they have a huge installation of, uh, of ELK and they, uh, they rely on ELK for log analytics and for streaming data analytics. Um, as with any open source, the more accepted it becomes and the more uh, widespread it becomes, the less uh, the the lo- the smaller the part that the people that actually maintain it and create it uh, play. So uh, if you look at Elasticsearch, the more widespread it becomes, the company Elastic is is maybe a little bit being marginalized because there are so many companies around it that providing services, that providing help, that providing support, that providing a cloud service like ourselves. Um, and yes, they're doing a great job, and I think it's a great product, and uh, we, we're happy to contribute to that product and continue maintaining it. Uh, but that's kind of like elastic. Today, we are the only company that offer a complete SaaS solution on ELK. The only company, uh, and uh, some companies offer hosted Elasticsearch, which is just one piece of it. Uh, but uh, but if you look at it the way we dis- we tell it, it's like we offer we give you a log analytics solution. We do just that. Elasticsearch is used many many times for uh, uh, for search engine and for other things other than log analytics. We only provide log analytics solution based on Elasticsearch and on the ELK. Sorry, um, and uh, and you tell us how much data you sent and we're going to absorb it. So if you said you're sending us 100 gig a day or sending us 5 terabyte a day, we'll, we'll take care of it. Uh, what the hosted solutions are, they, they tell you, okay, tell me how much compute power you're going to need and we're going to set up the cluster for you. So how would you know how much compute power you need? So, uh, so there's a big difference. So imagine like, uh, um, let's take probably the leading uh, SaaS or the, the originator of the SaaS model, which is Salesforce, 
Um, and they called it no software at the time because they didn't know that SaaS would exist. But imagine someone would tell, come and tell you, yeah, you know what, tell me how many servers do you need, how many CPUs, how much memory, how much disk space, and I'll set up a Salesforce instance. Like, how do I know how, the, how it operates, like how Salesforce operates inside? Uh, and what the impact of it, how many queries, how many leads I have, how many. So uh, doing a hosted solution is, is definitely improvement on setting up on your own, but being a whole SaaS solution is a completely different animal. The other thing, we're all, the only one that provide uh, SOC compliant, HIPAA compliant, uh, um, ISO 27001, uh, European uh, uh, data locality, and all of these compliance and certification were the only one that have it. So if you do care about your data, if you do care about the other stuff, then today uh, we're the only solution that, uh, that provide it. Um, on top of it, we also provide stuff, uh, features that are required for a basic log analytics solution, which Elasticsearch does not provide, and Amazon, who is the other hosted solution, does not provide like alerting, like reporting, like role-based access, like single sign-on integration, uh, like uh, live tail, like all these things that are that are actually required to to be a proper log analytics solution. Okay, and what role does machine learning play? So, uh, so it's a good question. So one of the things we realized early on it is that uh, um, IT operation these days, it's a big data problem because there's so much data. Uh, and if you can't figure out how to make, how to get ext extract the value out of it, then you're just left with a lot of data. And um, so we started out and we realized, okay, there's two problems in, in IT operation. One of them is how do I collect my logs uh, to centralize them and, and visualize them and get them into one place? The second thing is like, how do I get value out of them? Uh, and I am limited today by, if you look at any other product in the market, you're limited by the question that you know to ask. So if there's a problem in the system and you weren't looking for it, then you're not going to find it. The problems are not going to pop up on their own. Um, and we've looked at a bunch of solutions. We look at what other people are doing. And we realize that the best solution that, that we can develop is what we do is instead of looking at the data, so we're not looking at the data. We're not trying to figure out anomaly. We're not trying to group the data together. We're looking at how people interact with data. So what we do, we've built scanners that go across the internet and are looking for discussion. And someone says, hey, I have this problem in my log files. Can someone please help me out? What does it mean? Uh, it's Stack Overflow and Ascubuntu and Serverfault and Quora and Google Groups and hundreds of different websites that talk about IT operation issues. We use machine learning to understand what the threat is about. What is the problem? Which product are you talking about? Is there a solution in the product, in the thread? Uh, is the writer of the thread satisfied with the solution? How many discussions are there? Is it matching other threads uh, in the internet? And um, and we, we use machine learning to understand that. We use machine learning to cluster them together, and we come in with an insight. So... Uh, uh, if you if we see that line in your log line, we're going to pop up an insight to say, "Hey, this is a problem that exists in the uh, in the in the data, and uh, this is all the threads that are talking about it." And so, what you basically, get so you're basically harnessing all the knowledge of all the people that has ever managed IT operation into searching your data in real time. So, uh, and and obviously, this is a live system so the system updates itself all the time new issues pop new answers up, uh, pop and stuff like that the system is also learning from how people interact with the insights that we give them so if we tell someone hey this is an interesting thing then it is going to say hey you know what it's not that interesting that the system is learning and, and kind of like calibrating itself and, and and making the algorithm better i can tell you one thing that happened to us um early on when we first started out we uh, we used to have a lot of disconnects uh, disconnection with the Elasticsearch cluster, and uh, uh, we were running on Amazon, and uh, obviously we were always blaming Amazon for all the disconnection and told them the servers are going down. We spent about a month trying to hunt down the problem, uh, and eventually we ran into uh, one log line that says SKB ride the rocket. Uh, and uh, if you look at that log line, if you search for it on Google, you see that there's like thousands of threads talking about it. It has to do with the scatter-gather protocol on the specific Ubuntu uh, uh, server that we were using. And, uh, and this is a classic thing that the Insight would have found and helped and say, 
okay, there's a lot of discussion about this specific line. There's definitely a problem people think are interesting. Uh, and we've, we've managed, we chased it for, like I said, a month. And these are the kind of things it finds like the single line in the log that's going to indicate that you have a problem in the system, even though the problem may present itself somewhere else. Um, so these are the kind of things we do insights on IT operation. We do insights on security. So we crawl a bunch of security websites and say, hey, if you see this string in your uh, in your web access, then it means someone's trying to hack your server. Um, and um, I think Gartner defined it as, as kind of more being a social AI. Yes. Yeah. So, so you're not just actually logging client data. You're logging data that might be useful to clients as well and then potentially drawing patterns between those data sets. Exactly. And uh, one of the things we realized early on is that there's so many log lines and so much data, a human being cannot handle this. This is too much for someone to actually go line by line to read. Uh, a machine can also not handle it because IT operation is like one big anomaly. So uh, if you run it, you're going to run to so many false positive if you just run like basic anomaly detection. And actually, the best solution is to combine the both, to take the knowledge of human beings, which is presented over the Internet, use machine to be able to process it and, and scale it out. I mean, we have today more than 60,000 different insights. So we need a lot of compute power to be able to search all these insights in real time on every log line that comes into our system. And, and you can imagine it's hundreds of terabytes that come into a system every day. Um, so, so we use the machine to be able to um, complement the human knowledge um, and uh, and be able to find uh, to find issues in the system. Yeah, I think this is basically the the the, the problem with big data. I mean, it, it's not completely related to logging data, but just well, I suppose it is. We're just. Um, Logging data we might want to look at, data we do want to look at, but they're, they're part of the same problem, but actually then being able to do something useful with it. And uh, I think the, you know, the, one of the two reasons I was interested in speaking to you is that I have actually spoken to a few people looking at solving the same problem in different ways over the past week, um, making big data actually useful. Great, mm. you're logging all this stuff, mm. so what? What are you going to do with it? Is it actually useful? How does, as you say, one person or even a team of people even understand that? Um, and I think this is actually something I've seen increasingly so over the past couple of months. So I was interested to speak to you. But I am aware that your time is short. So the other kind of uh, slightly related question I wanted to ask you was that the, the message we got from, from you guys in the first place, the, the thing that interested me was there was a bold statement saying that um, open source will take over from proprietary by 2020. Um, and actually, my initial reaction was it already has. That's what I thought. Um, that was my initial reaction yeah. to it. So I'd be interested to hear if you think open source is already dominating proprietary. Um, if not, why not? And um, what you think will change over the next few years to make it even more popular? I, I actually think that uh, that open source has already taken over proprietary when it comes to big data and machine learning. Uh, if you look at big data today, so starting with Hadoop, Elasticsearch, um, Cassandra, MongoDB, all these uh, databases, um, all the unstructured data, if you look at R, if you look at... Uh, all the analysis that's being done in machine learning, then the amount of Python libraries that exist around it that are all open source. Open source has already taken over the, the big data. I think today, having a company that has a proprietary product around machine learning, around big data, um, is, uh, is not a good, it's not gonna be kind of like, it's kind of counterintuitive. And uh, we do think that open source is gonna take over. Um, I think it's going to work faster than by 2020 because uh, if you look at Linux, I mean, it took quite a while for Linux to, to take over. But now even Microsoft runs Linux. So uh, so people are people are uh, kind of like gave in. And, and I think part of the thing that people don't, don't understand is um, if you talk to people like, uh, if you talk to like companies like Splunk or Logic or other, they're, they're going to say, well, 
it, it just as expensive to run the open source as it is to run the proprietary product. So why are you running open source? But the reality, it has nothing to do with the cost. It has nothing to do with the price of the open source. I think it, it, it's kind of, first of all, it's, a, it's kind of like a human uh, um, desire to be able to be part of a community and contribute and do it. The other thing is that you are, so if I need to do something in Elasticsearch and there is a bug, I can go to their GitHub page and I can open up a ticket and someone, that, the person who actually developed it is going to answer me in like a few hours. If I need to open up a bug with Splunk, I need to call up a sales rep and he's going to talk to the product manager and he's going to prioritize it. And he's, someone eventually is going to uh, get back to me. It's like, I don't want this experience. I want the transparency. Open source doesn't necessarily guarantee the problem will get fixed, but at least you know the progress. <laughs> it's actually something I've always said is that open source and proprietary isn't that much different. It's just that open source airs its problems and proprietary kind of tries to hide its problems, I suppose. I also think so, and we do it on ourselves. So when we see a problem and we, we submit a pull request and not getting accepted, we fix it on our own. We fix it on our version, we compile it, and that's it. I mean, you, you have and we open source it, we fork it, we open source it. You should see how many forks there are for Elasticsearch to do different oh, things. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> yes, yes. As I say, I worked for one company that maintained one. So, yeah. Um, so I guess just to end on one final question related to this would be, so you've highlighted that big data machine learning is definitely an area where open source excels. Where is one area that open source doesn't excel, could do better, and what could it do better to do better in that in that area? Uh, it's, a good, it's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, some of the areas that are still proprietary, but it's it's probably going to change. Um, uh, I think the IoT space is getting to be more and more open source. I think one of the things that that is still very proprietary is the hardware space. So there are few hardware companies that are doing open source hardware. And though it sounds strange that someone's going to do an open source hardware, it actually uh, um, makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Uh, and companies releasing their, uh, their specs and information around that. I think um, we, we have encountered some, but you're right, it's hard. It's harder to fix and, and change things quite so well, and also anyone, anyone in inverted commas can run open source software, but being able to create open source hardware requires more in the first place, I guess. Um, um, I think the other thing is security. So uh, most of the security products today are proprietary products. Uh, I think it's changing. There are a lot of like uh, coming open source product for security. And uh, that's another area where I think we see, we see a big change of it in the market. Mm. Mm. There's obviously components of security that are open source, but you don't, yeah, you don't have that many kind of security products that are purely open source. Yeah, there's a couple, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have like an IDS like Wazoo, which is an open source uh, intrusion detection system. Uh, there's definitely a few versions of Linux that are uh, uh, security related, uh, and uh, so that's. Uh, that's definitely uh, something that uh, we see more and more coming today. It's being owned by, I mean, all this, most of like the same solution, the uh, security information and event management or proprietary products like alert logic, like uh, all of them, they're going to go away. Uh, it's all going to be replaced, but uh, at some point by open source products. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. I know you've got to get back to things. So, um, yeah. Uh, anything you want to announce that the company is releasing soon or working on or anything that's exciting you that you want to make sure people know about? Uh, we are going to release, it's going to happen in about a week. We're going to release live tail for, uh, for ELK. So it's all going to be free on our service. Um, and, uh, we'd be happy to work with you to kind of, kind of like push that announcement when we do the, the press release and you can write some stuff about it. Um, I'd be happy to meet you guys whenever you're in Israel next. So welcome back. Thanks for that little interview there. We had a few technical issues in, to begin with whilst I was trying to get my snazzy new mixer working and then gave up on it. <laughs>
I love Audio Hijack Pro, but sometimes um, hardware isn't as good as Audio Hijack Pro. If everything was made by them, it would be wonderful. Anyway, last week I was in Israel. I was talking at the Code Motion Conference, and I've heard so many good things about startups there, some from Kate too, that I interviewed a few people. My article has already been published on DZone. Uh, the link will be in the show notes. And I spoke in depth with three companies, Testim, who basically have a kind of machine learning fed test framework that learns how you change your application and then updates the test automatically for you. I then spoke to Overops, who are a um, an error logging framework for JVM-based languages that works straight in the JVM and gives you all the information you need to know about the error uh, without you actually having to put in logging for that error. And then finally, I spoke to Corelogix, who we touched on briefly in the interview you just heard, who are, yes, as we alluded to, a sort of proprietary uh, logging framework. They take logs from various sources and uh, make you able to actually understand what's going on in them, as they use in their own catchphrase, making big data small, which I thought was quite a nice little catchphrase. But one of the things, oh, and I also spoke to Rollout, sorry, oh, dear. <clears throat> I spoke to Rollout too, who allow, allowed you, and I use the past tense intentionally, to tweak uh, code in Objective-C and Swift live and also to do things like feature flags, enabling features on and off without having to go through App Store release cycles. And interestingly, they were having a problem right then because Apple just changed some policies and were not too happy with what they were doing. Yeah. And they haven't completely solved that yet. And there's some interesting blog posts on their blog actually talking about this sort of thing. But one of the things that struck me the most that was interesting about Tel Aviv in comparison, say, to Berlin, um, was that the number of startups I spoke to who are very mature is a very mature scene. Mm. Um, you speak to people and they're not bootstrapping, <laughs> as the people would say here, with three customers and a product that maybe isn't that well developed yet. Yeah. They're often very well developed. They have customer bases that are solid. They have good investment. And there are various reasons for this. Some of that they've been at it longer. They kind of said to me, the startup scene, whatever that means, basically started in Israel in the 70s. Mm. So they've been at it longer. They have much better investment. Mm. Um, they have very good connections to the US. Definitely. The education and the military service helps give people skills that are necessary to running businesses, but also technology-focused businesses. But also, most crucially, possibly, similar to another one of my favorites in Estonia, they're small. So they have to think globally from day zero, whereas a lot of other bigger countries like the US, the UK, Germany, France, they can actually just make enough income from the domestic market so are a bit more lethargic when it comes to being innovative and pushing ahead. And I know, Kate, you speak to a lot of um, Israeli companies too. So what have you been your impressions of the ones you spoke Very to? Very professional, in short. Um, they have, like, like I was alluding to earlier, I mean, a lot of them are very, um, oh, what's the word? I mean, you don't have to be academic, but they come from a, a good knowledge background. Either they've picked up skills when they've been in the military or the services, um, particularly those based in security-based um, industries like IIT security, things like that. Or they come from, you know, universities and things like that. You've got a culture of education um, however you want to define education, it doesn't have to be tertiary or collegiate education. So they're, they're coming in with that. And then you've got um, smart networking. They're, they prop each other up in positive ways. They're able to collaborate. They're able to um, talk, to, it, talk to each other, but also about each other. And be able, like, you know, it's every time I speak to an Israeli company, I learn about a new one. You know, um, they prop and support each other in a way that you don't always get in environments where, I don't know if the competition is more cutthroat, I don't know if that's the right term, um, but they facilitate an ecosystem that works for people that are in, are in it. Uh, I really like that. But I think that they're good at making contacts. They're good at connecting with other countries. They, they have lots of leads in other parts of the world. So, you know... They're able to find people that will help them in other in other other places, and that's a smart way to operate, particularly when you when you're bringing something new out, like a new business. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to it. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I talked to lots of Israeli companies like Vea, Dojo Labs. I interviewed a few weeks ago at Mobile World Congress. And I just I wrote about them a couple of weeks ago and their security solutions for um, IoT security. There are, you know, uh, uh, it's almost, you know, every lead in IoT these days that I see, whilst there's a lot coming out of the valley, there's a hell of a lot coming out of Israel and France as well, I'd add, I'd add with that. Um, and I often say to people, you know, if you, people always ask me, um, particularly people in the States, where's the Silicon Valley of Europe? And while it may not be technically part of Europe, I don't know what the um, exact rules are there, um, I would always say that. Well, I'm surprised Americans do make that Silicon statement Valley though, Europe. because um, yeah. I found Americans were generally fairly aware of Israeli companies, and most Israeli companies have an office in America anyway, so I would think they probably know about them. They're in the Eurovision Song Contest, though. <laughs> I would definitely echo the connections as well and the easiness of being able to network with people. Yeah. And I'd like to give a shout-out to, and I probably will absolutely abuse the pronunciation of his name, Gennady Okrain, who didn't really fit into my kind of roundup of uh, topics. He makes iOS apps. He's a one-man iOS app uh, company. Uh, and he most famously, he makes the Memento application, which is quite well known, I think. Um, and he also operates out of the Autodesk offices who are just above Facebook and have amazing views from the office window. But he helped introduce me to a lot of the people I spoke to. And then everyone I spoke to was kind of, as Kate said, introduced me to someone else. It was yeah. very easy to arrange interviews. Yeah. Um, and I also just noticed uh, De Pulse. It's a project management uh, tool who I narrowly missed out on interviewing. Just announced, uh, I think, about 20-something million funding like yesterday or today. So, again, very appropriate, very timely. Okay, that is the Gregarious Mammal slash Weekly Squeak. Probably no more that name. Podcast done for another episode. We will speak to you again in a week's time. We record roughly on a Friday morning, Friday afternoon every time uh, and with release coming out about Monday, Tuesday the following week. If you want to keep up to date with what we're covering, you can look at gregariousmammal.com slash podcast. The uh, page will also get updated soon with contact details for both of us and links with where you can add your thoughts on some of the topics discussed. We will also be back on video again next week. All my new audio hardware, it was a bit hard to cope with setting up the video too. But we will have video back again so you can see us having a go at each other and giving us visual cues to each other. But for now, if you enjoy what you heard, and apologies, it was a little, uh, a little all over the place this episode. We just were trying lots of new things that didn't quite materialize how we hoped. But next time we'll be a thousand times better. But if you like what you hear, go to gregariousmammal.com slash support, buy some merchandise, make a donation. Everything is appreciated. And this is Chris. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Chinch saying, have a good day, have a good week, and I'll talk to you again next week. And my co-host... This is Kate. If you want to find me on Twitter, why not? We'll just do a shout out to Twitter, Kate underscore Lawrence. That's Kate with a C and Lawrence with a W.